Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Football great Steve McNair was found shot to death. Investigators have been here on the scene examining evidence. A lot of folks asking a lot of questions about who this woman was. Is not the wife of Steve McNair. I'm not going to confirm or deny any relationship that he had. The totality of the evidence clearly points to a murder-suicide. She kind of got a kick out of the fact that her ex-boyfriend was a Steve McNair fan and he had no idea that she was dating him. Picture of Shahir Kazimi. That looked like the young lady that you saw the gun. That's exactly the lady I saw the cop. It was clear that Gilliam was setting his alibi. That small detail that knocks out premeditated murder. We've gotten back Ms. Kazimi's phone records, and we have some problem with some of the statements you gave of the extent of you and Ms. Kazimi's relationship. Everyone knows your phone's a walking GPS. If you're going to do something dirty, you leave it. I've not even met a person yet. Who believes that Jenny did that? This is Tim Rowan. Welcome to Fall of a Titan. One week after Steve McNair was found dead, his family organized a funeral. And, as is often the case with someone of McNair's stature, this one was open to the public. Nearly 5,000 people came to pay their respects at Reed Green Coliseum, the basketball arena at the University of Southern Mississippi about 35 miles southeast of Mount Olive, where Steve grew up. It is said to have been one of the largest funeral gatherings in the history of the state. Ray Lewis, Steve's teammate for two years with the Baltimore Ravens, addressed the crowd with an impassioned speech. He promised to be there for the McNairs. He told everyone how exemplary a human his friend had been. Life ain't about what people see on the outside. Life is about what comes from the inside. Jeff Fisher, Steve's longtime coach with the Titans, led the crowd in saying the Lord's Prayer. Because tonight in this building, we have family. We have Michelle, boys, brothers. Vince Young, Steve's protege, declared, Steve was like a hero to me, and heroes are not supposed to die. I used to walk, talk, and try to be like Steve, like every day. Of everyone at the service, however, one person was noticeably quiet. Steve's longtime friend and bodyguard, Robert Gaddy. You could argue that, at one point, Gaddy had been as close to Steve as anyone on the planet. But Gaddy didn't speak at that funeral. He didn't serve any meaningful role. He wasn't even a pallbearer. Dr. Alvin Simpson, the former Alcorn State professor who remains a close friend of the McNairs, helped the family put the funeral service together. And he found it curious that Gaddy was omitted from the proceedings. I would have been insulted as a close friend and confidant not to be invited to be a pallbearer. But Gaddy was not a Paul Barra, and said nothing about it. That was strange to me, too. You know, you're this close to a person. I mean, you, you select the most honorable people 
to be the pallbearers. According to Doc Simpson, the McNair family gathered that night at Lucille McNair's house after the funeral. This was at the ranch, as they call it. And while everyone was milling about, guess who showed up? Robert Gaddy. At one point that day, Tim McNair, Steve's older brother, confronted Gaddy. Here's how Doc Simpson remembers it. Gaddy was asked a direct question on the night of the funeral by Steve's brother Tim. He asked, did you kill my brother? And the response was, no, but I have an idea who might be involved. Really? Yeah, I find that strange. If you have some idea, go forth to the police department. Gaddy said he had an idea who might be involved. By all accounts, though, he has never come forward with that information to anyone in the media or anyone in law enforcement. Jerry Fletcher, Steve's backup quarterback in college, told me he was standing right there when Tim McNair confronted Gaddy. John Holloway, Steve McNair's cousin and close friend, was there that evening at the ranch, too. He told me the same story. He asked Gaddy, did, did you have anything with my brother's dad getting killed or whatever? And Gaddy was like, nah. What was everyone's reaction when Gaddy said no? I don't know. How did people take that? Like they didn't disbelieve, like they didn't believe, didn't nobody believe him. Because that's one thing I know. If Steve was out of the club, Gaddy knew, Gaddy knew every, his every move. So if anybody had a chance to get to him, it would be Gaddy. But I had Jerry Fletcher told me the other day that he seen uh, Gaddy not too long ago or whatever, and Gaddy had lost. Gaddy probably don't weigh 160 pounds now. And Gaddy was weighing a big 360, 300, 400 pound guy. So it's probably, it's probably eating him up on the inside or whatever now. Oh, yeah, you think it, the guilt is getting to him? Yeah, I think the guilt is getting to him. To this day, people in the McNair circle still have questions for Robert Gaddy. They have questions about Gaddy's actions the day Steve died, about his relationship with Steve, and about what he did and did not know about Steve's death. Why all this suspicion? For starters, Gaddy was one of the two people who discovered the bodies at Steve McNair's condo on the afternoon of July 4th, 2009. Of those two, he was the one who called the police. But he wasn't the first person to arrive at the scene. That was Wayne Neely, a middle-aged white guy who worked at a Nashville sporting goods store at the time. Wayne had gotten to know Steve over the years because Steve would often come into the store to buy equipment for the softball team that he bankrolled. The two men struck up a friendship, it eventually got to the point where they decided to rent a condo together, so Steve would have a place to take women when he wasn't with his family. Neely told the police that around 12.40 p.m. on July 4th, 2009, he happened to be driving by that very condo when he saw Steve's car parked outside, and he decided to stop in. Later, he told investigators that he wanted Steve to make an appearance at a Little League baseball game later that afternoon, and so Neely walked up to the front door. Tapped on the door. Nobody said that. Unlocked the door. I thought they were asleep, snuck in. I'll tell you what, when you, you open the door and tell me what you saw, suddenly on the couch, I thought you asleep, I swear. Neely saw someone on the couch, someone else on the floor, and he thought they were sleeping. Now here's a question that Vincent Hill, the private detective, poses. Were the lights on when Neely walked in? If they were, you'd think that it would have been obvious that someone was dead on the couch, someone who'd been shot four times. Would someone really have thought that these two people were sleeping? One on the floor? But if the lights were off, imagine how hard it would have been for Jenny Kazemi to have shot Steve McNair four times, with precision, in the dark. Remember, police say the shooting occurred around 2 a.m. The police asked Neely about this. Were the lights on or off? I don't know, he said. 
I spoke to Charlie Cardwell, the guy who owned the condo complex at the time. He lived in the unit across the way from Steve McNair's unit. He also happened to be a good friend of Wayne Neely's. And Cardwell told me he spoke with Neely outside the condo shortly after Neely found the bodies. When he first went in, he saw them on the couch. And, you know, it was dark because they had all the shades pulled and everything. So uh, he goes and puts his, based on what he tells me, he puts his beer in the refrigerator. And then when he comes back, that's when he realized that something wasn't right. Neely apparently didn't get a good look at the guy on the couch, this guy who had been shot four times. He later told the police he thought it might have been one of Steve's friends. Personally, like you've been in a fight to me. I didn't know it was Steve. So I'm just thinking, God damn, I can't believe I didn't recognize it was Steve. I just can't believe it. I've seen it 15,000 times. What do you mean you didn't know it was him? I mean, I didn't recognize him on the couch. Did you? Wouldn't you expect that to be him since it's his place? No, I mean, I just... Oh, you mean just the way he was, the way he was laying there? Well, yeah, I mean, just... I see. I, I, didn't think it was Steve. I understand. Just because, I mean, there's people coming from Mississippi State. There's people. That's my point. You didn't. You thought that could have been somebody else. Absolutely. Neely told police he snuck past two people sleeping in the living room, went into the kitchen to get a beer from the fridge, and then headed back into the living room. Then that's when I saw saw uh, the blood. And what you said something about a bullet or a shell casing or something? Shell casing on the floor. Just one. But you saw two. two. I picked one up and I right back down. Neely picked up a shell casing, saw blood, and then he bolted out of the condo. I just went fucking, I didn't know what to do, to be honest with you. And I tried to, I called Steve, I didn't know it was Steve. I called Steve, I told him a surgeon, called Raymond, then I said, I called Getty. And he said, don't go back in there till you get it to me. And I sat and waited. Well, so I went back and told me I'd come back. I went, fuck, I didn't know what to do. You're stupid. Neely tried calling three people. He tried calling Steve McNair. Remember, Neely said he thought it might have been one of Steve's friends in the condo. No answer. Then he tried Raymond White, Steve's personal assistant. Raymond didn't answer either. Then, at 12.51 p.m., Neely called Robert Gaddy. Gaddy didn't pick up at first, but he called Neely back shortly after that. Neely told Gaddy that he'd found somebody shot inside Steve McNair's condo. And then Gaddy gave Neely very specific instructions. Stay outside and wait for me to get there. He didn't tell Neely to dial 911. He didn't tell him to call an ambulance. Gaddy said, don't do anything. Wait for me to get there. And Neely says he followed those orders. Put yourself in Neely's shoes. If he's accurately describing how things went down, he must have been a nervous wreck. Maybe he figured, if one of Steve McNair's friends has been shot inside the condo, if something sensitive needs to be taken care of, and if Steve isn't available, then Robert Gaddy or Raymond White, two of Steve's closest friends, will know what to do about it. Raymond White had been Steve's personal assistant for as long as anyone could remember going back to their days together at Alcorn State. Raymond hadn't been on the football team, but he hung out with a lot of jocks, and he went to a lot of the same parties. I was told that Raymond's father owned a nightclub near campus, and that Raymond apparently ran a chicken wings joint. He was known as a fixer, the guy with the hookups. And toward the end of college, as Steve McNair's fame began to skyrocket, Raymond White started running errands for him. Here's how Bryant Mix, one of Steve's college teammates, describes White. Raymond was Steve right-hand man from shit even when we was i won't say on campus you know him and steve got cool and raymond was just always raymond didn't play any sports or anything but raymond always was one of those guys that got out and hustled for what he wanted in life you know and was always 
he had little arsony and restaurants and stuff going on. And then he started, you know, and he always took care of us and kind of done things, you know, for us. You know, one of those things where we need to know uh, how about going, you know, let's go here and do this to do that. Hey, man, call Randy. You know, Randy always got his hands in a little bit of everything. He thought he'd get you hooked up with something. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Around the time Steve got drafted in the first round in 1995, he hired Raymond White to be his personal assistant, full-time. Raymond handled all the little things. He ran errands, he did Steve's laundry, he did all the chores a star football player wouldn't want to do. When the Oilers moved to Nashville in 1997, that's when Steve brought Robert Gaddy into his inner circle. Gaddy had played at Alcorn State too. He was one of Steve's offensive linemen. But from what I'm told, Gaddy and Steve weren't that close in college. That happened later, in Nashville when Steve was playing for the Titans and Gaddy was playing for an arena football league team, the Nashville Cats. They had a history together, going back to their college days, and Steve liked Gaddy. He began to trust him. Soon enough, whenever Steve McNair went out in public, he'd have Raymond White and Robert Gaddy at his side. If White was like a personal assistant, then Gaddy almost acted like a bodyguard, although it was unclear whether Steve actually paid him. Sometimes it was hard to tell if Gaddy was working for Steve or just hanging out with him, like a friend. Here's how Mark Harper, another teammate of theirs from Alcorn State, described their dynamic. The friendship was like like brother and brother. I mean, that's why it was hard to tell if he was actually doing bodyguard services or not. Even if he was, I don't I wouldn't think it would be like on an official level. It'd probably be like, yeah, I'm gonna take my big buddy with me. You know, he's gonna be with me wherever, wherever I go. Gaddy had aspirations beyond being a bodyguard anyway. He was a fixture in the Nashville nightlife scene as a club promoter. He was instantly recognizable by his sheer size. Standing about six foot four and weighing roughly 300 pounds, he was known around town by his larger-than-life nickname, Big Daddy Gaddy. And after Steve McNair retired from football, around the time he started dating Jenny Kazami, he decided to follow in Big Daddy Gaddy's footsteps. He'd get into the food and drink industry, too. In June 2009, less than a month before he died, McNair opened a sports bar called Gridiron 9, a nod to his old jersey number. The place was casual, a quick-service eatery that dished out fried chicken, catfish, and burgers. Steve gave a small stake in the business to Raymond White, and another to Gaddy. Gaddy told one news organization that if the place turned out to be a success, they planned to multiply these by many around the city. But it was around this time that the relationship between McNair and Gaddy ran into trouble. Chris Wall, who acted more formally as one of Steve's bodyguards, told me this is how it went down. Gaddy, I think, wanted to open up another club. I can't remember if it was a restaurant or a club, but I'm I'm almost positive it was a club. And he had told Steve, or asked Steve about borrowing some money, $10,000, I think it was. I can't remember. But Steve said no. And while Steve was, was gone, uh, and I think that's when uh, he went to Key West, if I'm not mistaken, but while he was gone, Gaddy took the money out of the safe anyway. Doc Simpson says Steve told him a slightly different version of that story, but with the same end result. Gaddy sold $13,000 from the retired quarterback. Steve had made an agreement at the restaurant that any check signed would require all three of their signatures. But here came the deception. 
when Gaddy was supposed to be picking up some supplies, and he was trusted. So Steve went on and signed, and Raymond went on and signed. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back, because when Steve went to make a deposit and he saw the balance, he stated to the teller that uh, there was an error, and she reminded him that a check had come through for 13000 such and such dollars. He said, no, I've not, I've not sent a check through like that. So she gave him an image of the check, and that's how he discovered that Gaddy had stolen the $13,000. According to Doc Simpson, Gaddy essentially tricked Steve into signing a check that was supposed to be used for supplies at Gridiron 9. Gaddy, Doc says, stole the money right out from under Steve's nose. And, as you can imagine, Steve was not happy with Gaddy after that. Emily Andrews, Jenny's roommate, backs this up. She told police she bumped into Steve McNair at a bar on June 23rd, about two weeks before Steve died. She said Steve told her that night that he'd been working more at the restaurant because he just fired Gaddy. Steve told her he caught Gaddy stealing $13,000. Jerry Fletcher, Steve's backup quarterback, told me the same thing, that Steve had fired Gaddy over some stolen money. According to Vincent Hill, Steve even told his mother about this. Vincent says Lucille McNair told him the story about Gaddy and the stolen money, too. One of the last conversations she had with Steve was, Steve was upset at Gaddy for stealing $13,000. And when Steve got to Nashville, his words, not mine, He was going to shoot that big motherfucker in the knees to bring him to size to kick his ass. When the police brought Gaddy in for questioning in connection with the Steve McNair case, they asked him about this dispute he had with Steve. What was the fallout between you and Steve? When did that That happen? That was really not a fallout. I mean, you know, every so so often we always... We started this business venture together. The restaurant? Yeah, the restaurant. I wanted to do something else. And he got upset about it and said then um, that I should I should wait on it. But about I mean another business venture. He was like I should I should wait on it, but I didn't. And he was he was upset about that. Right? But my mom was running this club. I, I wouldn't try to run a club. I wanted to do something else. He said I should wait on it, but I didn't. Gaddy doesn't contradict Chris Wall and Doc Simpson's version of the story, but still. Gaddy downplayed the rift. He told police that he and Steve had remained best friends. Yes, Steve had been upset with him, but that was just a speed bump in the relationship. I know, and I know he was upset with me but, um, about that, and that's why we went with, um, that's only been a week or two. And, I, and that's why I'm beating myself up, because I know if he, if he wasn't upset, if he felt anything going wrong during the course of the night, he'd have called me. Um, I, he'd know how I picked the phone up at 4 in the morning and get to where he at. And that's the, I mean, that's, I mean, I could be, I could be in St. Louis. He, if, if that man called me, I'm coming. But others close to Steve say this was more serious than Gaddy made it out to be. Chris Wall told me flat out, Gaddy stealing that money signaled the end of their friendship. They had a real big falling out, and it was pretty much a done deal as far as their relationship. Gaddy, he'll, he'll tell you to this day that they didn't have a falling out, and there wasn't no argument. But uh, from my understanding, they never did patch it up. Uh, at least Steve never told me that they were everything was fine. From my understanding, it was still on rocky or bad terms up until the time of his death. And there was no mention uh, anymore about the money from, from Gaddy or Raymond, or it just disappeared. Now go back to the afternoon of Steve McNear's death. 
Wayne Neely called Robert Gaddy at 12.51 p.m. to say he'd found somebody shot inside Steve McNair's condo. Don't move, wait for me to get there, Gaddy told him. Gaddy later told investigators that he was across town in bed at his house in Hendersonville when Neely called. He said he was starting to throw on clothes and that he too called Raymond White, Steve's personal assistant, to tell him the news. That was at 1.01 p.m. Then Gaddy said he rushed out of his house. Now it's unclear when exactly Robert Gaddy arrived at the condo. Gaddy told police he couldn't remember the exact time, but he said that it took him about 15 minutes to get there. The police made a comment. 15 minutes seemed like a generous estimate, considering Gaddy lives about 22 miles from the condo. But Gaddy insisted he was speeding all the way there. I made the drive myself, from Gaddy's house to the condo. I too sped most of the way, about 10 to 15 miles over the speed limit, and I got there in 20 minutes. So Gaddy's estimate of 15 minutes doesn't seem that far off. If Gaddy's 15-minute mark is correct, that would have placed him at the condo sometime around 1.20 p.m. Then Gaddy and Neely told police that they entered the condo together. Here's how Gaddy recalled the next moments to the police. I mean, I walked right inside with him. And as soon as, as soon as I stepped through the door, I seen, I seen Steve laid with his head back. So, I mean, I, and I saw the blood on his pants and blood on his shoes. I didn't get close enough to see him to see what were, but I seen the two bullet holes in the walls. And I didn't, I didn't get close enough to him to see him. Where, where he had been shot at or anything that I just stood, I looked at it. And I seen the blood all, all, all over and I didn't see any breathing, but I hit now, I called 911 immediately. And for some reason, I said, hope, you know what I mean? He, he, he stopped me from, but I, but I continued to make the call that I walked out of the apartment. I didn't even know the address or anything, so I'm, I'm trying to get somebody over. So how long do you think you ran out of the apartment? I went, I went inside the apartment a, a whole two minutes. I was in the apartment for two minutes, he said. But according to the police report, Gaddy didn't call 911 until 1.35 p.m. That's why it's so important to know what time Gaddy arrived at the condo. If he arrived at 1.20 p.m., as his own math would suggest, then he was at the scene for about 15 minutes before he called the police, not two minutes, as he said. I asked the police if they could clear all this up for me, if they could tell me what time Robert Gaddy arrived at the condo, and they just referred me back to Gaddy's police interview. The police don't specify an exact time in the summary report either. Here's what we do know. Wayne Neely arrived at the condo at 12.40 p.m. He called Gaddy at 12.51. Then it appears that Gaddy arrived at the condo sometime around 1.20. We don't know exactly when. We're making an estimate there based on Gaddy's timeline. Then Gaddy called the police at 1.35. Hello? Hello? Yeah, what's going on, man? It's 911. <laughs> Even if we don't know how long Gaddy was at the crime scene, we do know there was a 44-minute gap between the time Neely first called Gaddy and when Gaddy finally called the police. That means Gaddy and Neely waited 44 minutes, knowing that someone had been shot inside the condo before they called 911. Oh, my God. Rob, tell me what's going on. Somebody's been shot, 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 shot. Follow the Titan is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make the financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. The app is simple and intuitive, it's got a clear design, and data is presented in an easy-to-digest way. I recently downloaded the Robinhood app, and I found that it's incredibly easy to navigate. Robinhood provides charts and market data that make it easy for me to make an informed decision. And then I could place a trade in just four taps on my phone. The best part is, Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade. Not Robinhood. You can trade stocks and keep all the profits for yourself. 
Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at titan.robinhood.com. That's titan.robinhood.com. In the aftermath of Steve McNair's death, friends and family were already skeptical of Robert Gaddy, a guy they believe had recently stolen $13,000 from the retired quarterback. Now people were asking, why did he and Neely wait so long to call the police? What was with this 44-minute gap? These questions only got louder as details about the crime scene began to leak out. When police arrived at C. McNair's condo, they had found that he had just $7 in his pocket, one $5 bill and two singles. Steve's friends and family heard this and almost altogether jumped to one conclusion. He'd been robbed, which doesn't line up with a murder-suicide. The Steve they knew always carry around stacks of cash. When Steve's Alcorn State friends used to visit him in Nashville, he'd hand them wads of money just to go out on the town. Jerry Fletcher, Steve's backup at Alcorn, told me Steve wouldn't even tolerate handling small bills. Been with Steve 25 years. Steve McNett would never have $7 in his pocket. If it ain't 2000 or more. And Steve used to give us $100 going there buy a drink of Coke, and we used to try to give him his chain back, which would be about 80 dollar. He'd look it up, man, why y'all give me, man, y'all know I'm, well, I'm going to do that chain. You know what I'm saying? Steve kept $100 bills in his pocket. Steve would never, you would never catch him with no $7 in his pocket. When they said that, that threw up another red flag. Thought he might have been robbed. Oh, yeah, he'd been robbed. Mm-hmm. And then there's this. According to Doc Simpson and Chris Wall, Steve kept a safe at the condo. Doc Simpson told me Steve kept emergency money in that safe. And to his knowledge, only two other people knew about it. Robert Gaddy and Raymond White. But when the Nashville police arrived on the scene, there was apparently no safe. I asked the police about this. They said they looked into it and determined that there was, quote, no evidence that anything had been stolen. Doc Simpson finds that strange. The safe came up missing. And the question is, who took the safe? According to law, if nobody has any video evidence or whatever, it, it, it just becomes, I guess you can say, suspicious because Gaddy was the one who went in the condo. However, the safe could have been taken before Gaddy was in there. Now, I learned that he was in there for 10 or 15 minutes before he called 911. But the question is, did anybody go in there before then? I don't know. That was a big question for the police. Who had access to the condo? Gaddy told investigators that only Wayne Neely and Steve McNair had keys. He said that Raymond White had one at one point too, but that Steve had taken it away after he caught Raymond having people over. But who's to say whether Gaddy knew about every last key? For starters, one of Jenny's friends says Steve had recently given Jenny a key. Even Wayne Neely, the guy who helped Steve secure the condo, wasn't sure how many people had access. I don't know who had keys or didn't have keys, he told the police. He said that Steve had lost more goddamn keys than you could shake a stick at, and the McNair had changed the locks twice. Emily Andrews, Jenny's roommate, remembers one evening when she and Jenny were hanging out with Vince Young, and the Titans QB actually invited the two of them over to Steve McNair's condo. So he had a key, too. She says Young tried passing it off as if the place were his. Apparently, he had no idea that Jenny had already been there. Emily told me that they got a kick out of that. I I remember distinctly asking Vince Young, like, oh, so is this your place? Just kind of playing, playing dumb. And he said, yeah. And like Jenny and I looked at each other like, okay. And that's when we kind of like left. I mean, it was, we joked about it being like this party spot for the NF, for the Titans. It wasn't like, it just didn't feel like anyone's home. It didn't, it was just like a 
a place for these guys to try and get women, it felt like. When the Nashville PD examined the crime scene, they reported that there was no sign of forced entry. There wouldn't have been a need to force your way in, though, if you already had a key to the condo. And to this day, we don't know for sure how many keys there were. Again, the only people who we know for sure were in the condo on July 4th, 2009, besides Steve and Jenny, were Robert Gaddy and Wayne Neely. And the police asked both men separately, did you take anything from the condo? Listen to them question Neely here first. Was anything removed from the apartment? Did you pick no. up anything? Was there a gun? Was there drugs? Nothing. Was there anything Nothing. illegal that you... No. We don't want to hear about later, right? No. Did Gaddy no. by any chance pick up anything that was in there? Did you see him pick something up? Money? Anything no. weird? No. Anything of hers? No. I didn't. I'm 99% sure we came out together. Not 99% sure we came out together. And here they are with Gaddy. Was anything moved out of the apartment picked up? Uh, did you pick up a gun to help him out? Did you pick up any money? Was there any, no. anything weird in there? No. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, nothing. Nothing? No, 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 no drugs or nothing like that. I didn't see anything. Like I said, I didn't even take, I didn't take no steps towards Steve. I walked in, like his body is right here on the sofa. I'm part of, I'm part of from to the wall as close as I got to him. Didn't touch, didn't touch nothing. Just, well, just turned around, called him down one and walked out of the apartment. And I was trying to figure out, what, has anybody contacted him? His wife hit. Gaddy and Neely both denied taking money from the apartment. So the police at least asked about this idea that maybe someone had taken some cash from Steve McNair. But if you go over all the interviews with Gaddy and Neely, Nashville PD don't seem terribly concerned with figuring out why did Wayne Neely and Robert Gaddy wait so long to call the police? They didn't seem to push Neely or Gaddy on that. They just seemed to accept their story. When the police interviewed Robert Gaddy, this guy who so many friends say had a falling out with Steve, one of the first two people on the scene, they didn't treat him like a person of interest. They treated him almost like an informant. They asked him for leads. They asked him, what did he think happened? They even bounced a few names off of him. What do you think about Wayne? Who do you think did this to uh, Steve? Yeah, like I say, y'all, at this point right now, y'all know more than I do. And, and that's why I've been a little flustered about being here this whole time, because I want answers too. Then the police asked Gaddy about Jenny, and he seemed to perk up. Is Jen, Jenny, uh... That's what I want to know more about. Is this Jenny or Jenny? Jenny, I mean, I, I met Jenny a couple of months ago. I don't know how long he had been actually fooling with her. For so many years, we had our own little tight-knit circle. And there, uh, the last couple of months, Steve been, been dealing with people really outside that circle. Like when he started, I don't know where he met Jenny at, but all I know, he, he started dating her. And... Of course, I'm his friend. I mean, he, he's gonna listen to me at times. Sometimes he's not gonna listen to me. I told him I didn't approve of that. I didn't like that. I mean, but he kept seeing her. Gaddy indicated that he was skeptical of Jenny, the girlfriend who'd intruded on this little tight-knit circle. He would go on to say that there was another guy Jenny was hanging out with, a friend or relative of hers, a cousin maybe, and he didn't like that guy either. He was also suspicious of this new driver that Steve had hired, Fauzi Ali, a foreigner, Gaddy called him. Ali was the guy who drove Steve back to the condo in the early hours of July 4th. Gaddy had questions about all three of them, Jenny, Jenny's relative, and Ali. He painted them all as outsiders, as people who had infiltrated his and Steve's inner circle, people he didn't trust. Gaddy even brought up Jenny's DUI arrest from earlier that week. This girl, Raymond told me that the girl got a, um, a DUI some earlier this week. I can check into that. I mean, but Raymond told me that, you know what I'm saying? So I don't know... I don't know the whole details behind it, but I don't know a whole lot about this young lady. I know I didn't, 
I didn't, I didn't, I didn't approve of it. I liked the whole when he first started getting involved with it. What did he was it? Was she by herself? I don't even know what day it was. I, I, I have no idea. That had to be either, either Tuesday night or Wednesday night that the DUI occurred. When Vincent Hill, a former Nashville detective himself, heard this interview, he said it sounded as if this was the first time the investigators had heard of Jenny's DUI. He thinks it sounds like Gaddy was planting a seed, as if the DUI was something the police should look into. And from his perspective, the Nashville PD appeared to follow Gaddy's lead. Four days later, they announced at a press conference that Jenny had murdered Steve McNair, and they pointed to the DUI as one of the possible signs that she was spiraling out of control. Nashville police were satisfied in their resolution, but those closest to Steve remained skeptical of Robert Gaddy. Remember Tim McNair confronting Gaddy at the ranch, asking him something along the lines of, did you kill my brother? Douglas Fitzgerald, another former Alcorn State football player, told me that there's been a lot of chatter about Gaddy among his old college teammates. They seem to have the same questions Vincent Hill has. Why did Gaddy wait to call the police? What about that 44-minute gap? Because it was so much being tossed out there. You know, he was saying Gaddy found him and the time frame of when when the call was made. You know, we've heard all of it. And why was it, why was it a, a little gap in, the, in there? You know, it just people was, they just don't buy it. Fitzgerald told me that he's spoken to Gaddy a few times over the years at various Alcorn State events. And I know I'm being recorded, so how could I put this? I think he, uh, you know, I, I really don't know what all Gaddy knew. I think he had a sense that people out there felt like he knew or he had to know something more than he know. But me and him never went into detail what he did and what he didn't know. I remember saying this, this, and this. But I I just felt like he felt like it's been a dark ride for him. And like I say, he never said that's what he was feeling, but I could sense that he felt like he had a lot of weight on his shoulders. Gaddy did exchange a few emails with the fact checker on this podcast, and he did clarify a few things. But in the end, he declined to participate in any substantial way. He has, however, done a few interviews over these past nine years. And whenever he goes on the record, he continues to downplay any idea that he and Steve had fallen out at the time of McNair's death. In 2016, Gaddy spoke to a reporter with Crime Watch Daily, one of the true crime shows that Vincent Hill participated in. And Gaddy reiterated his claim that he and Steve never fought over money. It wasn't because of the money. We've gone to strip clubs and blown that in an hour. Yeah. Gaddy did say, however, that they had been fighting over Jenny. Remember, Gaddy told investigators that he didn't approve of her. Gaddy also reiterated how much he cared for Steve McNair. If he was in danger, that I would have stepped in front of that bullet to save that man's life. Because I love him that much. Gaddy did another interview this past July with a local Nashville TV station on the ninth anniversary of Steve's death. And again, he referred to Steve as his best friend. Vincent Hill finds that laughable, and it leads him again down the road of suspicion. He thinks that Gaddy is trying to rewrite history and erase the fact that he and Steve had a falling out. He thinks Gaddy should have been a suspect, if only because we have all these people saying that he was caught stealing money from Steve shortly before Steve's death. You got Gaddy saying, me and Steve had a falling out, we weren't talking for the last week or two. But yet, that's not a clue to this entire thing. Yet, you're the guy that calls 911. You know how many killers show up to the crime scene when police are there just to see what police are doing? Would it be not logical to think that Gaddy called 911 by design to remove himself from being a suspect? Oh, well, why would he have killed Steve? He called 911. Maybe that's what you wanted him, he wanted you guys to think. Well, if I call 911, I'm going to remove myself from being a suspect. But all of the evidence there 
makes him a suspect in this. It makes him a suspect. You got this falling out with Steve. You said you and Steve got into it. But now Steve's dead a week and a half, two weeks later, and no one's investigating that? That's just ridiculous to me. When Vincent started his own investigation in the death of Steve McNair, he treated Gaddy as a prime suspect, the same way he treated Adrian Gilliam, the ex-con who allegedly sold Jenny the murder weapon. In fact, one of Vincent's first big tips was that Gaddy and Gilliam may have actually known one another. Vincent heard that back in 2009 from a woman named Angela Dickerson, a woman he used to work with. Vincent interviewed Dickerson, and he shared a transcript of that interview with me. The gist of it went like this. Angela Dickerson owned a women's football team in Nashville, and at one point, one of her players happened to be dating Adrian Gilliam. According to the transcript, Angela told Vincent that sometimes her football team would hold parties at a bar in Nashville run by Robert Gaddy, Club 615. And during those parties, Angela said, Gaddy and Gilliam would sometimes hang out together. I know they met. I've seen them talking, Angela said, according to the transcript. To Vincent, this was a huge development. Here was the man who at one time owned the murder weapon, hamming it up with someone who had a beef with Steve McNair. You can imagine the scenarios running through Vincent's head. Vincent wanted so badly to confirm what Dickerson had told him that he reached out to this woman who had dated Gilliam. It was all through email. She never talked to me on the phone. And quite frankly, I tricked her and I was like, hey, I'm Bob with ESPN or or something like that. Um, but, you know, I got her to open up and I was like, hey, I understand you used to date uh, Adrian Gilliam. It'd be cool if I can get some pictures with him and Gaddy. She was like, oh, my house burned down. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Vincent went so far as to impersonate a reporter to try and get info out of a subject. This exchange is 100% pure Vincent. It's another reminder. Vincent asks some very important questions. He raises some very concerning points about Steve McNair's death, but he isn't always a reliable source. He isn't a police officer anymore. He isn't a journalist. He's investigating this case on his own, under the premise that Jenny Kazemi did not kill Steve McNair. It seems that his only goal is to prove that premise right. And sometimes I've found it clouds his judgment. The Nashville PD eventually came out and said that this women's football team never rented out Club 615. Vincent Hill's source told him otherwise. I reached out to Angela Dickerson on my own, but she didn't return my messages. So we're left with another Vincent Hill theory that butts up against the reporting of the police. Dr. Alvin Simpson has a few theories of his own. His theories are fueled largely by the things he's heard from Steve's friends and family. Remember, Doc knows most of Steve's friends from his time teaching at Alcorn State. He stayed in touch over the years with Raymond White in particular. At one point during one of their conversations, Doc says that Raymond revealed that he'd actually been in the vicinity of McNair's condo in the early hours of July 4th, around the time that Steve died. Raymond said he drove by the building and was considering spending the night there because he'd been drinking. Raymond told Doc that he ended up not going in the condo, though. None of that seemed to mean much until Raymond had a conversation with his own son, Ryan. That same night in 2009, around 2.30 a.m., Ryan said he received a phone call from Robert Gaddy. Gaddy was asking Ryan whether he knew where Steve McNair was. Hearing all this together, that phone call struck Doc Simpson as strange. If Gaddy were looking for Steve, why would he call Ryan? Why wouldn't he have first gone directly to Raymond, Steve's assistant? But then, Doc told me, Raymond put it all together. Or at least, he thinks he put something together. The night Raymond stopped by the condo, he'd been driving Ryan's car. And now, in his head, Raymond imagined, maybe Gaddy was in the vicinity of the condo that night, too, for God knows what reason. And maybe he'd seen Ryan's car outside, not knowing Raymond was behind the wheel. How else would you explain Gaddy calling Ryan like this, asking about Steve, in the middle of the night? 
That was hearsay by Raymond until I talked to Ryan directly. Because during the week that Raymond visited me, he called Ryan on the phone. And I was able to ask Ryan directly myself, is it true that Gaddy called you 2.33 a.m.? He said, yes, Doc, he did. I said, what did he ask you? He said, he asked me, had I seen Steve or did I know where Steve was? So that's strange. Doc Simpson and Raymond discussed all this when Raymond came to Atlanta to visit a few years ago. During that visit, Doc says Raymond made a call to the FBI. He had to call on speakerphone so Doc could listen in. Raymond wanted to try to set up a meeting to offer up new information on the Steve McNair case. He mentioned that Gaddy needed to be interviewed by the FBI because he possibly knew some things he was not making mention about during the time that he was asked questions by the police department there in Nashville. Several people felt that more specific questions needed to be asked based on some rumors that had surfaced. And part of it had to do with Gaddy calling Raymond's son, which he had never called him before, like 2.30 or 3 in the morning, to ask where was Steve. Raymond's son did not work with Steve, and how would he know where Steve was? That was an unusual call. Doc says the FBI told Raymond he should contact the Tennessee State Police. But in the end, he says, Raymond did not pursue the matter because he felt like he was getting the runaround. I don't know if there's any validity to Raymond White's claim that Gaddy knows more than he's letting on, but just the fact that he made that phone call to the FBI is remarkable. Think about it. Six or seven years after the Steve McNair case was closed, his personal assistant called the FBI, saying there was new information in the case and that they should question McNair's former bodyguard. Raymond's call went nowhere, but other people have taken more proactive measures to get answers about what happened to Steve McNair. We'll talk about that and more next week on Fall of a Titan. Still to come on Fall of a Titan. Any police department where you have a crime and you're not willing to accept any new evidence shows cover-up all day. We wasn't shown all the pictures. They even admitted they took out several pictures. Suddenly, officers that you know were talking stopped talking because some of them said some things were different than what the reports came out with later on. How a piece of crap little 9mm gun were so precise with these shots and these angles that it really looked like somebody knew exactly how to fire those type of rounds. Hi, this is Tim Rowan, host of Fall of a Titan. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our hub page at si.com backslash McNair, where you can get documents, videos, and more material associated with the case.